Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Intelligence Squared this evening. Uh, this is a very special program for us. I'm Clea Connor. I'm the CEO of Intelligence Squared. I'm so excited to welcome you here. For, for more than 15 years, you know, our core mission has been to really elevate discourse with the understanding that hearing two sides, hearing opposing points of view is good for society. Well, that's up for debate on its own. Tonight, we're bringing you insights from one of the world's most celebrated debaters, Boso, two-time world debate champion, former coach of the Australian national debating team and the Harvard College Debating Union. Um, He's the author of a new book called Good Arguments, Disagreements Everywhere, and How Do We Do It Without Becoming Disagreeable? Bo is here to teach us how to do that. He's gonna talk about the role of active listening in debate and uh, teach us how to disagree well. Last point, I know we wanna get started. One thing we can agree on, America needs more debate now than ever. Um, So we're excited to bring you this program So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce and bring to the virtual stage our host, John Donvan, who is, as I like to say, America's most experienced debate moderator in history, coming to the table with a debate champion. So we're very excited. Hi, John, let's get started. Hi, Clea. Um, So I'm going to talk about the experience I've just had of you over the last five days when uh, I picked up a copy of your book. I I, I, want to say it was a really, really fascinating read because it's not only a contemplation on the role of debate in the present time, but it's also uh, an autobiography. And your autobiography is really, really in itself riveting. I, I, it was interesting when I saw in the closing section of the book, you sort of summed things up with what sounded to me like a little bit of a note of melancholy. You wrote, to change the world, debate has to first change the lives of debaters. And in this book, I have told the story of how it changed my life. Debate gave me a voice when I had none. It taught me how to argue for my interests, to respond to opponents, to use words, to lose with grace, to pick my battles. As far as transformations of the world go, this is minuscule, but for me, it was everything. Now, that that sounds like an awful lot of rehabilitation (laughs) needed to be done on your life through debate. I'd like you to sort of unpack that and tell us where you come from, where you've been, and how debate intersected with everything that you've become now. Well, thank you so much, John and Clea, for the organization, for having me. I'm a huge admirer of this program, and uh, it's wonderful to be with fellow travelers, in a sense. Um, You know, you might need a psychologist chair to see where the trace of melancholy came from, Um, but... It's probably rooted in my biography. I mean, I moved to Australia from South Korea when I was eight years old without speaking the English language. And I quickly learned that the hardest part of crossing language lines like that is adjusting to real-life conversation, to the jagged rhythms, to the way in which people pivot mid-sentence, kind of throwing you out of whack. And all of those difficulties tend to compound when it's a disagreement because passions tend to run high. You get the sense there's something really at stakes um, and people's facial expressions kind of stop matching what's coming out of their mouths. And um, Australians have a difficult time with pronunciation at the best of times. And um, uh, when they're arguing, it gets worse. And so, you know, in and amongst all that difficulty, I kind of resolved at a time that arguments were no longer worth it, that I would keep to myself. Um, when, you were how, when you were a young child? I was eight, yeah. And even then I sort of understood that it's easier to just wear a kind of a distant smile um, and just nod along, you know. And, and, you know, I wouldn't have had the vocabulary then, but I think part of it is the experience of being an immigrant for me, that you get the sense that you're being welcome in a place can sometimes feel a bit conditional 
right? That that you're you're welcome to an extent. Um, that you don't speak up too much or you don't rock the boat too much. And so I decided this was, you know, this was likely how I was going to live my life. And that changed for me in the fifth grade when my primary school teacher encouraged me to join the debate team. And I made that decision on the strength of one promise, which was that in debate, when one person speaks, no one else does, right? And to someone who had been spoken over, interrupted, thrown out of the conversation, um, that promise sounded like a kind of mercy. And um, I ended up uh, chasing it, you know, all around the world. And, and I've given most of my relatively short life um, to this activity. And, you know, when you're writing a book, I think you, you want to say, you know, this is it. <laughs> and you want to you shake everyone on the street and say, I've found the answer. Yeah. And uh and I'm sure I haven't, you know. Um and 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 in in the really daunting list of challenges that Clear laid out, there's so much work that has to be done and so many different things that we need to do to come together as a society again, to come together as nations again. But I know from my experience that the power of this activity to empower individuals to speak up, to be able to engage others with respect, to be able to come together in conversation and leave with unexpected answers that you didn't think you might arrive at. Um, that's a way of slowly changing the world. And so the melancholy comes from the fact for me, John, it, in that the change that we affect is always going to be very small. It's going to be between. You mean you mean we we debaters? Is what we you're debaters. Yeah, it's going to be about small changes in ourselves, small changes in the person across from us. But if you, if you can imagine everybody in the world engaging in these discussions, doing slightly better at the family dining room table or at work or out there in the public square, I have to think. And, and at this point, it is just optimism. But I have, to, I have to think that that's going to nudge the world in a more positive direction. So from what I heard you say, it was at the very beginning, because structurally debate, as you put it, means one person talks and nobody else talks during that time. For you, it was the satisfaction was in being heard, having your opinion heard. But there's another aspect that's key to debate and to the kind of debate that you went into, which was com competitive debate. Number one, it's a contest. Number two, you're not just trying to be heard, but you're actively, as you just put it, trying to change the world a little bit. You're trying to change someone's mind. So talk about how it is more than just being heard. And and what what about that appealed to you? I'm I'm guessing it was that the competition forced you to just get better at it, but... Maybe there's maybe you liked competing too. I did. I did. And you know, sometimes with these kinds of discussions on on civil dialogue and so on, I think sometimes it requires us to be kind of angelic, you know, to be kind of infinitely patient, to um uh to just take in the information and so on. But you know, there is a part of it which is um curiosity about how your ideas will be received and kind of like a pinball machine when it bounces up against the other person it's going to come back to you in a different direction right and so that process of evolution and trying to stay ahead and and you know in in a debate often um john i don't know whether you feel this as a moderator but the experience of competing usually isn't like Gosh, I really want to crush the other side. You're usually trying to just keep up with the, with the, with the pace at which the ideas develop. And you're kind of just trying to see whether you can respond to this next idea, whether you can evolve your thinking in a way that is going to be responsive to the other person's concern. And so, um, that experience of competition for me was important. Partly, I'm sure, because there is a, a part of me that's competitive, that wants to do well. But another part of me that just saw the joy of the transformation unfolding before me. 
and that 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 kind of progression and that propulsive force um, felt to me like a kind of progress. The reason the question comes up for me in light of the conversation that that Clay has laid out is that if we if we want to talk about debate as an avenue, good debate, good debate as an avenue toward uh, ratcheting down the polarization. You also need to be willing to change your mind. You need to be debated at and persuaded. And we frame in Intelligence Squared, our debates are framed as, uh, or, or have been traditionally, as win-lose, that you're, you, you are trying to win, and your competitive career was about trying to win. You, you were not on stage there. To, you were listening closely to your opponents looking for weaknesses, and for strategic uh, opportunities, tactical opportunities. But what we're really talking about, though, is a kind of way to argue in society that's not competitive, I would think, that it's, it's not competitive. It's a way to have a conversation from opposing points of view that can be respectful and taking the competitive element out of it, which means being able to change your mind without feeling like a loser because you, cha- you shifted ground somewhat. Yes, Yes, that's that's a really, really rich thought. And actually, um, one common refrain you hear from debaters, and um, John, the debate you moderated between IBM's project debater and the human, I spoke to the chief scientist behind that for the book, and he said he spent all these years of his life wanting to get the W, right, wanting to get the win over humans. And what he said was he realized after the debate that that was so not the point. And you, this is something that you hear from debaters all the time, that we spend so many years of our lives obsessed with taking on the victory. But I think what you learn as a debater is that victories are very fleeting, right? Mm-hmm. So... At the World Championships, there are 500 teams competing. It becomes knockout. So 499 teams lose, one wins, right? And I was in the 499 every time, except twice. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the one time I managed to pull through, the next day you get home and you have an argument with your roommate who has never debated a day in his life. And he wins because he's right. (laughs) I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More when we return. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template... With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's get back to our conversation. The experience of being a debater is the experience of becoming very accustomed to loss. So then I said, winning is not the point, so then what is? I think what the point is, is that in debate, you know that even the people that you beat are going to be back the next day or the next week or the next month on a different topic, on a different side, with different arguments, probably improved through the course of your last encounter. And you're going to have to start again. So you're going to have to learn to disagree in such a way that keeps the conversation going, right? And that keeps both sides willing to come back. And for me, that's the kind of goal. um, And that's the the most basic goal that I have of the book is inspiring people and, and, and hopefully teaching to the extent that I can people to disagree in such a way that they think it was worth it and that they would do it again. There was something you said in the book that I found really interesting, which was that one of your favorite views in terms of the way people talk to each other is ABC News is the view. Um, so the the show that has been on uh, for 20 years, started by Barbara Walters, it's, usually, it's a group of four women 
who disagree on topics, kind of kicking around a subject. And you are a big fan of The View. And I want to see what's going on on those couches that you really like. <laughs> I have to say I was quite young when I got into it. Um, I was in middle school. And I felt that those co-hosts, and they're, I think they're all women, um, they were doing something really quite amazing, which is here was a show where they knew and the point of their gathering was to disagree, right? And to disagree about everything, actually. Um, and, 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 and mean it, by the way. They were not posturing. And sometimes they leave, you know, <laughs> mid-show. And, uh, and there's not many of them. So if they leave, it's quite noticeable. And, uh, but they always come back the next day. And there's no, um, and there's a kind of a high and low thing, right? They'll argue about the politics of the day and then argue about what Britney Spears is up to. And it was the repetition of it that I thought was amazing, that they would be able to argue at, at really quite high octane, at a, quite a high octane pitch. But there was something about that, um, about their relationship, about the way in which they dealt with each other, that they had found a kind of a common groove and a common rhythm that allowed them to come back day and day and again. And, and, and importantly and amazingly, keep people watching. And um, you guys lived this out in a very different way, obviously, in this series. But to have people want to come and watch people disagree um, is for me a source of enormous hope because even at a time when disagreements are seen as a kind of a source of division and ugly and something to shy away from, um, people still do see the value in it. And there's also something to be said just about the idea that even by engaging in an argument with another person, you're demonstrating a gesture of respect for that person, that you will spend the time Engaging now. Now that's not true of all arguments. There can be some very nasty arguments uh, at the moment of a fender bender or something like that, and um, um, and in uh, some political settings that we've seen in the last couple of years. But that, by and large, would you say that the willingness to to to, to disagree with somebody, particularly if the two of you come at it in good faith, is actually a show of respect for one another? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I used to think that the willingness to engage in debate was a kind of a vote of confidence in yourself, right? In your ability to handle it and, and to express yourself well. But nowadays, I think it's more of a vote of confidence in the other person to receive you with some grace, to be able to respond and, 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 and make something productive out of the exchange. And for me, um, it matters that we try and debate a lot because you know, the wins and losses feel extremely consequential if we debate like once a year, right? But once we, but if there is a kind of repetition and there are many rounds and we disagree about lots of different things and, and, and we have different performances, the individual wins and losses become less threatening and it becomes more about the quality of the conversation that we have overall. I want to quote from your book again. One common criticism of debate is that it is too adversarial. The linguist Deborah Tannen famously decried what she described as an argument culture which prized debate over dialogue and thus blanketed society in an atmosphere of unrelenting contention. Atmosphere of unrelenting contention is her phrase. So in the context that we're talking about now, we're, we're going to move into this conversation with the idea that disagreement is, first of all, natural, it's inherent, it's unavoidable. But doing it well can be beneficial. I think you believe that and you're arguing for that. But what about Deborah Tannen's point that argument has a bad rap uh, and debate has a bad rap for the very reason, again, that Clay went to in the beginning, that it, it, it threatens to feel like um, a match thrown onto, the, uh, thrown onto a bale of hay uh, where the bale of hay is already ready to go up. I totally messed up that metaphor, but I think you're going to help me get out of it. <laughs> um. It's a really serious critique, right, from Deborah Tannen, and, 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 and I wanted to take it seriously in the book and to engage with it carefully. And the idea is this kind of adversarial ethic um, turns people off of conversation, that it can be counterproductive. 
The answer I come to is, and what she's describing is a culture of bad disagreement, that the opposite of bad disagreement need not be agreement, but it can be good disagreement. And I'm not sure we've seen outside of small pockets of civil societies, the school networks where debate proliferates, what a culture built around good disagreements look like, looks like, right? And I'm really excited by the possibility of that culture. It's a different kind of argument culture, isn't it? And, um, and at this time, I think we're seeing kind of two cultural forces at work. One is the culture of bad disagreement, right, which is people shouting across at each other. And the resistance to that is a culture that favors sorting, essentially, of like gathering with like, of organizing, of finding your people, um, of, of, of gathering with, with, with like-minded individuals. And I want to sort of say against both of those, there should be a third culture that's based around good disagreements. Um, and as I say, I'm excited to see what that might look like. So I, I want to move on in a moment to making all of this personal, the, the Thanksgiving table conversation challenge that we're talking about. But one more moment on a part of this conversation that's political. And you talk about, you do talk about the top, the idea that certain topics should not be on the table for debate. And in some cases, that's because of the offense that they might bring to individuals who are challenged by the very premise of the debate itself. Um, you, to, to go back to your book, um, you're talking about the disruption, that kind of disruption, the weight of that disruption would, could land more heavily on those for whom the debate was raw and personal. As debaters, we had to be attentive to these people, not because they were, quote, snowflakes, a term of derision meaning an overly sensitive person, but because they were human, prone to hurt and exhaustion. We had to think less about the freedom to disagree than about the responsibility to disagree well. This goes directly to the conversation that's taking place about what's happening on college campuses and whether certain, certain it's often phrases whether certain speakers should be brought on campus, but I want to put it on in a different framework of whether certain topics should be entertained as debatable or not. And I want to know what your thinking is on that. We did a debate, for example, uh, we held it at the Harvard Law School five years ago, six years ago, where the resolution was affirmative action has outlived its usefulness. And the debate went fine. But um, I could imagine that in today's, uh, in, in, the, in the present moment, that a resolution like that might be challenged as very, very, um, as you said, disruptive for for people who uh, believe in and have benefited from affirmative actions policies. So where where are you on when you can't debate a topic or when you can't expect an individual to participate in a debate. It's a very tough topic. It's a really, it's a really, really difficult issue. Um, and the only real bright line that I draw in the book is a debate cannot question the equal moral worth of the participants. Because the whole point of debate is you're given equal opportunity and equal time to speak because you have equal worth as individuals. So I don't think it would be acceptable to have a debate saying certain races are inferior to others pro or con, for example. And, and, and for me, that would be a bright line. The passage that you're, you're describing about sensitivity to the burdens is more of a consideration that I think um, is something we need to think about. We also have to think about when we as institutions um, stage debates, the kind of legitimacy that we lend in suggesting there are two sides to this issue, right? So that's another issue that we might have to think about in the way that media companies... Uh, but, that, but that judgment is ultimately political. It is ultimately a judgment call. Of yeah. course it is. Yeah, of course it is. And, 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 and I think one thing I, I would add here, John, is the fact that these kind of, some things may not be appropriate subjects for debate does not mean we should stop speech on it necessarily, right? So there are lots of different ways in which we can talk about something. And there are instances where simply sharing our views might be appropriate, where, um, uh, uh, or having kind of, you know, dueling perspectives 
presented, but not in a kind of an adversarial debate format might be more appropriate. There are other times when you just have to negotiate, for example, and that's not the same thing as debating. So this is a book about debate. The higher level question that it answers is, how can we disagree better? The higher level question above that is, how do we deal with the fact that we're all different, but we have to coexist? And at each turn, disagreement is not the only answer to coexistence. Debate is not the only way in which we can disagree. And so there are some instances where debate is appropriate. And and I think, you know, there's lots of different ideas, um, all of them worth canvassing about where we might draw the line, but I've given you a sense of where I might. But that's not to say we we shouldn't talk about those issues. It's that we shouldn't debate about. Them. All right. Well, let's let's bring this then to some news you can use for okay. for the, uh, for, the for, <laughs> for 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 us who are not going to get on a debate stage and we're going to stick to our views. We think at the beginning of a conversation or a disagreement. Um, what what's what's the guidance you offer to us regular folks about getting through awkward moments where we. You know, I, I, I want to almost say we're going to negotiate, but we're, we're not talking about a negotiation. We're talking about an expression of views with the idea to p- persuade. So take us through your prescriptions for the rest of us. I'll give you a couple of examples. So the first half of the book is structured as what I call the basic elements of debate. And that starts with topic, identifying what the disagreement is about. It goes through building an argument, responding to the argument, using rhetoric, which we've discussed a little bit before, and finally, um, picking your battles, even within disagreements of of when to disagree or not. And uh, I'll give you an example from the first chapter to do with topics. And, um, you know, it's so often the case that in the disagreements that we have at home, what begins as just a kind of a disagreement about the dirty dishes then becomes, you know, this thing that happened last week, or, you know, something your mother-in-law or father-in-law did, um, or the sense that you're not listening to me, or it, it tends to compound, doesn't it? And one of the starting points in debate, um, and, and I see it in the Intelligence Squared debates as well, is naming what the, dis- the, what the debate is about, and that's the topic. So that you're able to say, um, all of those other things that you're talking about, my personality included, might be fitting subject for debate at some other time, but it's just not the debate that we're having right now. I disagree with that. What if, what if, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm bringing that up because you might, one might encounter resistance to that formulation yes. at the outset. For sure. And, and for sure. And that isn't an, an instance where you probably do have to negotiate prior to the start of the disagreement, right? So um, every d- disagreement, in my view, should start with some amount of agreement. And that's thin agreement about what you're actually talking about, which is to say what you're not talking about, and how you're going to go about having that disagreement. And so um, being deliberate in that way of choosing what we're talking about, given the time that we have, given the, 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 the situation in which we're facing off against each other, I think that really increases the chance of it of the disagreement going right. What about learning how to interrupt? That's been one of my tools uh, that I'm comfortable using as a debate moderator because I'm the moderator and I get to interrupt. And when I'm watching the so-called presidential debates, I'm always dying for the moderator to break in and interrupt either any of the candidates there. But in personal interaction, interruption can really, really be seen as, uh, as aggressive and offensive. Yeah. I think, in general, it's not a very good idea in personal disagreements. And the reason why I think that, John, is um, I'm sure you do it very judiciously. Um, But where uh, there is no third-party moderator and you're playing umpire and moderator yourself, I think people usually tend to have kind of... um, self-serving or slightly distorted ideas of when an interruption might be justified, right? So the, the, the way in which I would kind of fix that is the turn-taking that's a feature of debate, right? Where I get to say something, you respond, but I don't have to interrupt at this moment because I know I'm going to get a chance to respond. Oh, I see. As long as you can kind of 
it doesn't have to be I talk for seven minutes uninterrupted and you talk for seven minutes uninterrupted, but you can say, can I have a little bit of time here, right? And then you're going to get a go, but we have to agree that I'm going to get a go in response. I think that's a better way to do it because it cools the temperature um, and it increases the chance that both sides will be heard and each side will be heard by the other. Yeah, it strikes me that that actually could be a takeaway tool for for any of us if we're going to have a conversation with somebody at work, at home, and family, and it's going poorly. To just say, let's just do this. Let's let's just take turns and and hear each other out and be fair about that. I think could be very very constructive. I'm wondering also, you referred to side switching as a technique that you would use um, in competitive debate to sort of prepare yourself and to see into your opponent's uh, soul. Um, but but what, what about in terms of a real personal debate with somebody at work? Does it, is it useful, first of all, internally and psychologically, to really truly try to see your opponent's side of the argument? And is it useful, I don't want to say opponent, the other person's side of the argument, and is it useful also to say, I'm going to take a minute and tell you what I think you're saying to me and, and tell me if I'm right, tell me if I've got it? I think it could be. I think it could be. And in order for the side switch techniques to be useful, it doesn't require you to fully understand what the other person is thinking. And in fact, that might not be a, a, you know, always a, achievable, right? But what I like about the exercises is it does give you a few moments of uncertainty, right? To countervail against what might otherwise be strongly held conviction, right? Which is a good thing. But to be able to say, I might have missed something here. I think that makes you a more agile debater. I think it makes you more flexible. I think it makes you more receptive um, to the ideas that the other side is putting forward. And so it's not so much that the side switch exercises allow you to achieve empathy, but maybe that it creates the room uh, in which empathy can emerge and seep through. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More of our conversation when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our discussion. You know, we're, we're very lucky to have in attendance today one of our multi-time debaters. I think he gets the gold coat that we give out to all debaters who come multiple times. So, Andrew, we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, um, on what Bo's been talking about, because you, you do a ton of programming, a ton of uh, uh, pub, public forum work uh, of your own. Uh, you're you're in, you're devoted yourself to advancing the public discourse, uh, and you've debated with us a bunch of times. I think you might have been a side switcher in the past. You may have been one of those. Which side do you want me to be on, guys? Yeah, well, I am in life. Um, <laughs> that was a rude joke. Um, yeah, and actually, Bo and I have. Um, Bo came on my uh, keen on podcast show. Fabulous conversation. Fabulous so we had a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, um, I, I like a little bit of impoliteness. I think um, one of the things that we have to be careful of, perhaps with this whole debate about debating, is that uh, to be too concerned with other people's sensibilities. Because sensibility is very much, I think, of a liberal conception in America, at least, I don't know elsewhere. So... Um, and I think it's one of the things that really annoys conservatives, understandably, that liberals tend to be oversensitive, maybe because they listen to too much NPR, maybe they come to too many intelligence squared debates, whatever it is. These are important conversations. They're very destructive conversations in the sense that they, if we're talking about, I don't know, economics, I mean, it impacts on people's lives, how they live their lives. Um, so I, I don't think we should be shy of passion. Um, I mean, obviously, incivility is inappropriate. I think, for example, the way that Trump behaved in his so-called debate with Biden or with Hillary Clinton was, uh, was uh, inappropriate. But I, 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 I'm a little 
um, wary of, of this sort of fetish of sensitivity. The other thing I think, Wait, but I, you're, I, I don't, I don't think that I hear Bo. You're, you're, you're not suggesting that's Bo's argument at all. I don't think because I didn't hear that from. I him. think it's more yours actually. Oh no, no. <laughs> I only ask questions. I'm teasing you, John. But oh, okay. I just think that um, we need you, to recognize that these that, that we should be passionate doesn't mean you should punch each other in a debate, mm-hmm. but a, a degree of aggression and passion and even dislike is not a bad thing uh, because these can often be life and death issues, especially around politics and economics. Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking about when you were speaking is this idea that there is a truth about a debate and that, um, that that's beyond or um, that's, that's not what the, the, the theater of debate is. So my sense is from what you guys were saying is that there's on the one hand, there's the theater of debate, the rhetoric, the drama, the clever discourse. And on the other hand, there's some sort of truthful, um, perhaps quantitative uh, summary to, to these issues. And, and I would argue that the idea of you know data leading us to a conclusion is itself ideology, is itself debate, or it's often science pretending it isn't debate, but it's science's way of debating. Um, so I, for me, the theater, the, the drama, which Bo is obviously very good at, um, that is the thing in itself. And I think that's something that we shouldn't be shy of. And it's something that we should enjoy and encourage. And I think, John, yeah. you do a very good job within the confines of civility on Intelligence Squared doing that. So, so let's, let's embrace and celebrate the theater of debate because that's what it is. The science of debate to me is slightly illusional. And and Bo, when I was talking about your performance in Thessaloniki, what I saw was a performance of passion and um, and uh, an appropriate stage. I mean, where else to, to be passionate than in yeah. uh, Thessaloniki? I mean, if you're not going to do it there, you can't do it anywhere, though, yeah. right? Good good place to win as well. So we we have um, some some journalist friends who are joining us um, and would like to jump into the conversation. I'm sure. Who would like to go first? Peter, do you want to uh, jump on in? Hi, I'm Peter Coy. I'm an opinion writer uh, at the New York Times. And Bo, uh, my point is similar to Deborah Tannen's. I am fully persuaded by you that debate promotes mutual understanding in a world where people want to learn from others and pride themselves on open-mindedness. Yeah, That's the intelligence squared audience, but not the public at large. In most of the world, I would argue, teaching people to debate expertly simply provides them with fresh weapons in the service of motivated reasoning. In this real world, debate is to understanding as boxing is to intimacy. Your thoughts? <laughs> um, the last bit really threw me. Um, I'm sure there is an intimacy to boxing um, and a bit of boxing in intimacy, but um, <laughs> I won't talk about that. That was nice. That was nice. Peter, um, it's a really, really rich question. And I'll say two things. I think the first is debate does have normative values embedded in it that I think we need more of. Some of it is candor. Some of it is some of it is experimentation, the kinds of things we've been talking about. But it alone won't solve the problems of a culture that's divided and polarized, right? So there are other virtues of generosity, for example, of regarding the other that I don't think debate is antithetical to, but that an investment in debate needs to come alongside the rejuvenation of some other virtues. I think that's the first thing I'd say. The second is, I do think it is a kind of a tough thing to sort of say, let's debate, um, uh, you know, stop shying away from the, dis- from the debate and so on. When in fact, what we've allowed is for our common skill set of disagreeing well to have atrophied as much as we have, right? 
So in a world where, and this is just sort of my judgment, where we don't learn that much in schools or, or, or in other sources of education of what a good argument looks like and what its possibilities are, um, that's a world in which the few things that we do know um, are much more prone to abuse. So I, I think the, um, I hope the book isn't, and, and the conversation isn't just a let's just argue more kind of thing, but it's a, um, a desire for that rooted in a rejuvenation of a skill set that I think allows us to, um, to turn arguments into a force for good rather than bad. But I, I recognize that's an incomplete answer to, um, a challenge that, um, that, that I think deserves a longer treatment. Thanks, Peter. And Deborah Quilter, if you want to unmute, we'd love to hear your contribution. Thank you. Um, I am trying to correct misinformation about <clears throat> leading occupational injury, repetitive strain injury. When people Google the topic, much of what comes up is dangerous advice that can make matters considerably worse. I'm trying to get medically sound information out there. So what's the best way to persuade people to listen to solid medical advice instead of trying every risky trick they see on YouTube or in these forums? And how can we who are not naturally gifted debaters and who don't necessarily think quickly on our feet improve our skills to get our message across without alienating the people we are trying to reach? Um, I appreciate the question. And, and I obviously have, um, I don't have the expertise that you do on the, on the particular subject of, of communicating on, on matters of health. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more generally about how I thought about misinformation, um, which is that in some ways, the mass proliferation of alternative facts is something enabled by the absence of debate, in my view, which is in echo chambers where people more or less agree and are willing to categorize their views in slogans that if you click on it, you can see all the other people who agree with you. Um, it becomes much easier for those facts to proliferate. And, um, and again, I'm not sure this is always the case, but the great advantage that truth has over lies is things tend to fit together a little bit better, right? And, and, and in the way in which when we tell lies, we sort of trip up over ourselves. Um, at some point, the lies intersect with the truth and are seen as something not quite fitting, right? And one of the things I write about in the book is the tactic of a liar is usually to tell many lies rather than few. Um, and, and in engaging with someone like that, you can often waste all of your time trying to respond to everything. And one of the things that um, we learn to do is to pick a representative lie and sort of similar to what John said, to call out the kind of general practice that the other person is engaged in, to, to using that representative lie, fitting it in with other things we know to be true about the world and showing the ways in which it falls apart, and explaining why that's more sim that that's symptomatic of how that person is approaching the disagreement. Um, so, you know, with these kinds of really daunting, almost existential questions, and I see the ways in which it has real human consequences in the case that you've described, I want to try and contribute some of the tools that debating as a community has, has, has come up with in responding to that. Um, but I, I hope it is a kind of an invitation to a discussion from people who have the expertise that I don't um, in these particular uh, uh, facets of life um, so that we can develop a more robust set of toolkits, whether that be about persuasion or, or responding to mistruths and, and falsehoods. But, but we've had some uh, a few submitted questions. This one comes from Daniel, who asks, what's a significant this is a big question. What's a significant moral, philosophical, or political question on which your own mind has changed recently? And the answer could be none, by the way, that's permitted. The existence of God. But I won't go too much <laughs> into that. I feel like I change my mind on that all the time. All right. Well, that's a big one. Um, second question comes from Phil K. 
Given that online debate is common and getting more so, how could online discussions be structured to improve the quality of dialogue and increase the chances that participants learn from the exchange? You actually write a lot, a lot about uh, online debate forum, uh, and you sound ultimately in the book disappointed with how it plays out there. But uh, I'll let you finish that thought. I do a little bit, and... Um, uh... Another way of framing kind of our discussions about the rules that govern debate is, I think as a debater, you become very sensitive to the fact that not every discussion has the same acoustics, right? And, and um, in social media, where it's often the most divisive content that gets prioritized because it drives engagement, and another interesting one is, and this is a problem that we sometimes face in, in, in competitive debate too, is even though I'm disagreeing with the person across from me, it can sometimes be purely for the benefit of the audience, right? So I'm kind of instrumentalizing you in some way so that our disagreement is a kind of a performance so I can get the applause from the people who already agree with me, right? And... Um, I think the channels for disagreement, uh, there's some interesting research that I cite in the book that, that, that try and make the most of the situation and think about the, you know, the, the kinds of tactics that tend to work. But um, I feel personally a little bit less optimistic about that and that um, a closer diagnosis of what's going wrong in those settings um, should nudge us toward... Um, creating better conditions for disagreement rather than trying to compete within, uh, within, within those frameworks. We have one more question. And, and, and Claire, I want to circle back to you on this because it um, kind of goes to where we began the conversation. It comes from Bob B. The question is, after the debate, meaning an Intelligence Squared debate, after each debate, should Intelligence Squared comment on the quality of debate tactics used during the debate? I assume that means comment publicly because we certainly discuss it internally. It's a great question. Um, I think we, we kind of do comment on that during the debate. John, you know, when somebody asks repetitive questions, when somebody defaults to talking points, when somebody avoids answering a direct question, John Donban is the, you know, as the moderator comes right in and says, you know, Thanks, we've heard that before. Uh, we understood that the first time, but I'd love for you to answer the question that we just heard from your opponent. So, so I think that we're playing the role and John is the moderator and us as a debate company, we think deeply about these topics. We game out the two sides. We almost do a pre-debate flow for our, our debate nerds in the audience who know what that even means, where we line up you know, arguments that we anticipate that are for and against throughout the course of the debate. Um, but you know, in terms of us commenting on the quality of, of the, maybe the mechanics used, we actually leave that to folks like Peter, <laughs> who are here with us you know, from the New York Times or from the media, um, people that do comment on uh, the debate and really kind of give us a sense of the quality of the arguments that were presented through the lens of varying degrees of expertise, advocacy, and, you know, um, interests. So, yeah. so I don't know if it's our role. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what, what Bo thinks. You know, we're not the judges of the debate. That's what I was going to say also. And I think it could also give the perception of compromising our efforts to be neutral in this. If afterwards we gave grades, it would seem as though we were, those grades were preordained uh, because we're on one side or the other. But I'd also like to hear what Bo has to say on that. Um, I think I agree generally. There is, there is, however, a kind of a, you know, so I think about the adjudicators for the debates that I had and, and, and John and Claire, you guys would have this kind of insight too. There is a kind of an insight that you get from seeing lots of debates, right? That regardless of the substance of the particular question that's being discussed, you get a sense of the kind of the dynamic um, and almost I describe it as a physics, right? Of, a, of, of sort of patterns and, 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 and yeah, the dynamics by which people engage regardless of the particular topic at, at, at stand. So I don't know whether that's a, 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 a post-debate thing, um, 
uh, and and I share those concerns about it feeling like grading, but at some point a kind of a debrief or maybe even a kind of a, a sharing of the lessons over not an individual debate, but perhaps a number of them. Um, I think something like that could be useful. Well, the clock is telling me that it's time to wrap up. Andrew Keene, thanks so much for joining us and Deborah Quilter and Peter Coy. Um, Claire, it was great to have you in part of the conversation. And both so, um, we, we, we love that you're a fan of Intelligence Squared because we're a fan of yours. I want everybody to know that Good Arguments is a really fun read, a romp through the <laughs> of, of debate in the career of one man who's come a long, long way from being shy and not wanting to get into people's faces and trying to stay out of arguments to one who has made arguments in art form and is an artist at it. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next time. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shay O'Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer. And Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.